So we want to talk uh, tonight about eternal security. And this is such a crucial topic and crucial doctrine. And I've found uh, through the years that, you know, people are kind of all over the map on it. For a lot of people who grew up in a well-grounded Bible-teaching church, it's kind of old hat. It's simple. It's obvious. It's, yes, of course, we believe in this doctrine. And, and in many cases, they can defend it with several, you know, key scriptures that come to mind. But in other cases, I found that uh, people don't really understand what it is, uh, can't define it, and um, really don't understand the importance of it. And then, of course, there are there's a whole segment of people within Christianity who flat out deny it. That just don't they understand what it, the doctrine is? They just reject it. They, their churches and their denominations do not believe in this doctrine. So. Our purpose as we go through this um, is to build on what we've talked about over the last several months on Wednesday nights, um, going back to key terms about salvation that we looked at, uh, going back to even to our look at James chapter 2 and family of God versus fellowship with God and what the gospel is not and repentance. And we've talked about so much all related to our wonderful salvation by grace through faith. Uh, that this is sort of a, an important topic to sort of put an exclamation point at the end of this study. Um, uh, so we want to kind of take our time to walk through it. Um, I, I originally intended this to be two weeks. If it takes longer, that's fine. Uh, obviously, our Wednesday night uh, study is more interactive, and we often chase rabbits and get uh, talking about other things. So we're not on any agenda here. Um, but uh, I would like to kind of you know, spend our time uh, talking about this subject for the next week or two at least. Um, so let's uh, dive in and we'll talk about the three basic views on the doctrine of eternal security. Uh, first of all, there is what I call explicit denial. That they absolutely make no bones about it. They believe you can lose your salvation. So therefore, no matter how you define eternal security, they would reject it, right? Uh, they just flat out uh, deny it. It reminds me of a conversation I heard one time. A friend of mine was interviewing at Ph.D. programs. This was 25 years ago. And, of course, he's a conservative, Bible-believing Christian, believes in inerrancy. Uh, the doctrine of inerrancy is that the Bible, there are no errors in the Bible, um, scientific or otherwise. And that's what we mean, by the way, whenever you hear the term conservative. You know, the term conservative in theological circles is different from the term conservative in political or social circles, right? Uh, there's often a lot of overlap, but context determines meaning. And when you're talking about theological, liberal versus conservative means basically comes down to one thing. Do you believe in inerrancy or not? If you reject inerrancy, you're a liberal. Now, you may be of extreme right-wing conservative politically, and you may consider yourself a Christian, and you may be a Christian. But if you're a liberal, theologically, a liberal Christian, it means you don't believe in inerrancy. So just to define our terms there. But anyway, this guy was a conservative Christian looking for a conservative institution to do his PhD work. And he was telling me the story that he called up uh, one school and he was talking to the director of admissions and he got to talking about different topics, and at one point he asked the director, do you guys believe in inerrancy? And the guy immediately said, oh, no, absolutely not. 
And my friend said, well, you know, maybe we're not understanding each other. Let me tell you what I mean by inerrancy. And the guy said, don't waste your time. It doesn't matter how you define it. We don't believe in it. <laughs> so that's the way some people are. Obviously, he didn't go to that school. Uh, but that's the way some people are about eternal security, okay? And that is a, a you know, legitimate view. It's wrong, as we're going to demonstrate in this study. But a lot of denominations and, and people associated with those denominations hold this view. They simply deny the doctrine of eternal security, and they believe you can lose your salvation. But a related approach is what I call the effective denial of eternal security. Uh, and this would be people who give lip service to believing it. They would say, oh, absolutely, we believe in eternal security. But when you really dive down a little closer into their doctrine, in, in essence, they're really, they really don't believe in it because they believe your salvation can be disproved or invalidated. And so this would be Calvinists, Reformed theologians, people like that who would say, you can't lose it, but if you're not doing good works or you drift far enough away from the Lord, it proves you never had it. So really, whether they admit it or not, they are effectively denying eternal security because in their scheme, as, and we've talked about this, if you don't have good works, you're not saved. So really, in their scheme, you cannot know for 100% certainty that you'll go to heaven when you die until you die. And many leading Calvinists uh, have, if they're honest, have admitted that. R.C. Sproul uh, famously said he can only be 99% sure that he is going to heaven. Um, now, he's 100% sure now because he died, and presumably he's a believer. No reason to think he's not, even though he was teaching false doctrine late in life or most of his career. Uh, we assume that he was a believer. But his own admission was he won't really know for sure till he dies because it's possible in his theology for him to deny the faith or drift away from the Lord or somehow apostatize. And in their view, apostasy means you're not saved. So, again, they would... They would say they Calvinists would say they believe in eternal security, but what they really believe in is the perseverance of the saints, which is the view that every believer must persevere in good works until he dies. If he doesn't, he's not going to heaven. Bottom line. Okay, so it's what I call the effective denial of eternal security. But then there is the explicit defense, which is what we believe the Bible teaches and what we're going to hopefully prove uh, beyond any shadow of a doubt through a number of uh, points, uh, that salvation can never be lost, period. So uh, sometimes you'll hear this referred to as once saved, always saved. Some people have a problem with that statement. I've never really understood why, because it's pretty basic English and basic grammar, and it basically tells the truth. If you're saved, you can never be lost. I mean, that's what Jesus said. I give you eternal life, and you shall never perish. So once you have eternal life, if Jesus, unless Jesus is a liar or made a mistake, you can never go to hell. So once saved, always saved. Uh, but a lot of people don't like that, and they don't like it because they believe as we've talked a lot about in recent weeks here on Wednesday nights, they believe you've got to bring something to the table, you've got to put some skin in the game, that salvation is really this bilateral quid pro quo, and, and when you say once saved, always saved, somehow it implies that you didn't have to do anything, and they think you do have to do something. 
Uh, but you don't have to do something. Jesus paid it all. It's simply a free gift received solely by faith, not by some type of a contract. We don't give anything to the Lord. We receive something from the Lord. So I don't have any problem with the phrase, once saved, always saved. I think we need to shout it from the rooftops, and I think it's uh, one of the reasons that most Christians live a life of defeated ineffectiveness is because they're constantly questioning and wondering, am I really saved? Because they've been influenced by either number one or number two uh, on this list, and they're just not sure. But according to Scripture, we can be and we should be sure. That's what eternal security uh, comes down to. It's the belief that you can never lose your salvation. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, your home in heaven is eternally secure. End of period, end of discussion. Okay. Now, don't just believe that because I said it. Hopefully, we'll show you from Scripture why this is true. And I encourage you to uh, study these Scriptures for yourself and come to your own conclusion. But to me, uh, it's, it's absolutely uh, unambiguous. And I hope, hopefully, we will see that as we work through uh, this uh, material. So, uh, all right. So, uh, those, are the, those are the three views on it. We're going to be focusing on the third view, and hopefully by the end of this study, uh, you will come to the same conclusion that salvation can never be lost, and eternal security is a clear biblical doctrine. Uh, Satan's primary goal is to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. You've heard me say that several times. Um, and he can accomplish both of these tasks with one arrow for, for, from his you know, arsenal. And that is an unclear or faulty gospel message. Uh, the reason so many people reject this doctrine, as I just said, is because they've been influenced by a false gospel teaching. Uh, they've been told that somehow getting saved means making a commitment or making a pledge of allegiance or promising to be good or forsaking all of your sin or somehow giving something to the Lord. So therefore, if down the road after you got saved... You're not as committed, you're not faithful, you're not walking with the Lord, you're not giving as much to the Lord, you're not surrendering as much to the Lord, or whatever it might be, then naturally they're going to think, well, either I lost it, if they're coming from an Arminian, you know, works-based salvation, or if they're coming from a more Calvinist perspective, they're going to think, well, maybe I never was saved to begin with, you know. So it just breeds doubt. Um, so that's the reason the gospel is so important, and why it matters more uh, than anything. But if you understand the gospel and you understand grace, which is undeserved favor, then you'll, it will follow that once God gives you something that he calls eternal, by definition it can never be lost. Um, so there's a correlation, all I'm saying is there's a correlation between false or confusing understandings about the gospel and a denial of eternal security. They tend to go together. Uh, so Paul said in first in Romans 1:16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, now it is a little grammar lesson here is a pronoun, of course. And what does it refer back to? The gospel of Christ. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now that prepositional phrase for everyone who believes is crucial because if it just said i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of god to salvation we would all be universalists christ died for our sins and he died for the sins of the whole world so everybody's saved but it's not automatically 
that everyone's saved. It's only the power of God to salvation for those who believe it. For those who believe it. So you've got to believe the right thing to be saved. Which is why we've spent so much time talking about this. If you believe that it's faith plus surrender, or faith plus commitment, or faith plus pledge, or faith plus forsaking, or faith plus repentance, or faith plus giving yourself to the Lord, or faith plus anything, that's not faith. You know, if the gospel is X, to use the mathematical equation that I've talked about before, then you have to believe X to be saved. Pretty simple, right? If the gospel equals X, you have to believe X to be saved, because you have to believe the gospel to be saved. So if you believe X plus 1, have you believed the gospel? No. Because if X is the gospel, X plus 1 cannot be the gospel. That's a, you know absolute impossibility. What if you believe X minus 1? You know, you haven't believed the gospel. So we've got to strive for clarity and accuracy uh, here. So the devil, as I said, wants to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. We know from 2 Corinthians 4 that he's blinding men's hearts to the gospel. Uh, and he's doing that by clouding it, obscuring it. Uh, and promoting and propagating false gospel messages. Uh, but Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There it is again, just like Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God. So, you know, that's why I make such a big deal about the gospel. And I was told one time by somebody that I care too much about the gospel. I don't think that's possible. I don't think you can care too much about the gospel. There's no more important topic in all of Scripture. Uh, now, we need to be gracious in, in talking with people about it, and we need to uh, you know, not be harsh and ungracious in, in talking to people who have a false understanding of the gospel. Uh, but nevertheless, it is crucial. Um, and, and it's always uh, interesting to me that the first thing that Paul dealt with under the inspiration of the Spirit when he began writing uh, what we know of as 13 epistles, for sure, possibly 14 if Hebrews was written by Paul. Uh, the first thing out that, that he wrote was a defense of the gospel in Galatians. And the first thing out of his mouth was, if you're preaching any other gospel than what we preach to you, you're going to come under strict judgment. It's, it's not good. Uh, so there's an underlying confusion that we've talked a lot about um, that is related to people's on being uncomfortable people being uncomfortable with the doctrine of eternal security and it's these issues of salvation versus discipleship justification versus sanctification family of god versus fellowship with god those are all the same thing three different ways of really referring to the same issue so i didn't put it up on the screen for this week but if you think back to those two columns that we've talked so much about uh, you know, positional righteousness and practical righteousness, justification and sanctification. If you have a, uh, a misunderstanding about those that line of distinction between the two, and you're thinking that certain uh, characteristics or requirements for discipleship are actually part of the requirement for salvation, you're going to be confused. And you're going to be confused about eternal security. Um, uh, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a free gift. Discipleship does come at a high cost. There is a high cost for it. You are supposed to take up your cross daily to be a follower of Christ. You are supposed to count the cost. Uh, you are supposed to die to, your, <clears throat> to yourself daily. But none of that gets you into a relationship with God in the first place. That's simply receiving a free gift. As a child of God, there's a high calling of discipleship. And that does involve commitment, surrender, all of these things that people think are how you get saved to begin with, but they're not.
So I want to go through eight undeniable proofs of eternal security. Now, some of these will resonate with some of you more than others, and, and, and some of, them, some of the, these are going to be like a light bulb going off, and you're going to say, oh, yeah, of course, it makes perfect sense. They're all kind of coming at the issue from a different way, but to me, it's a cumulative case. I don't need eight different points to prove the doctrine of eternal security. All I need is one scripture. Uh, that's enough for me. But uh, I just want to really pile on, in a manner of speaking, and make it just crystal clear that this is so important and so plain and, and clear in Scripture. So, again, uh, some of these ideas you, you may have already thought through. Some of them uh, you haven't. So the first one I want to talk about is logical proof. Logical proof. Um, eternal means eternal. Now, how profound is that, right? I mean... Eternal doesn't mean maybe eternal or possibly eternal. It means eternal, right? And eternal life is a present possession, not a future prospect. Eternal life is something you either have or do not have now. You are either eternally alive in Christ or you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, so the, the logical argument goes like this. If eternal life could be lost, then it was never eternal to begin with. And Jesus has given it the worst possible name you can give it. So let's look at some scripture. John 5, 24. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come unto judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, there is no wiggle room there. There's no little asterisk or footnote that says, unless you drift a certain distance away from the Lord, or unless you deny the Lord later in life, or unless you do this. Or, there's no asterisk. There's no wiggle room. It's an absolute. You have it now. And it would be a false statement even if he added an asterisk, because then what he was mean, would mean is you don't have eternal life. You might have eternal life. So what he would say is, he who believes in me, might have everlasting life if you continue on to the rest of your life, if you don't do too many sins, if you don't commit any big sins, or, you know, whatever. Uh, and he doesn't say that. The, only, the one and only condition mentioned 160 times in the New Testament, more than that, actually, in order to receive the present possession of eternal life is faith. Uh, John 6, 47, the next chapter, Jesus says it pretty plainly. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has, present tense, everlasting life. So you don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. Make sense? So John 10, 28, which is a very well-known proof text for the doctrine of eternal security. I think it's the best one. But it relates to this idea of logical proof because here's where Jesus said, I, when he's talking about being the good shepherd, he says, I give them eternal life when? When they believe in me. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And then, not that he needed to because Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, he, he said, uh, I think it's in the same chapter, I and my Father are one, John 10.30. Uh, but he goes on to add in verse 29 that my father, who is greater than me, no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. 
So, I mean, it's like double, triple, quadruple insulation here. Uh, you just can't lose it. But notice the present tense again. I give you eternal life. And if it's not eternal, it, the, it's, he's giving it the wrong name. Right? So it all goes down to you know, the, the meaning of words and the basic, basic logic. Right? You can't get eternal life and end up in hell. They are mutually exclusive logically. Does that make sense? Any questions or comments about what we mean by logical proof? Let me put it back up here. So it's kind of a process here of logical thought. First of all, eternal means eternal. <laughs> That's the meaning of the word. And you get eternal life as a present possession when you believe the gospel. Therefore, if our salvation could be lost, then it was never eternal to begin with, and <coughs> God was disingenuous. Does that make sense? Yeah, Sally. Well, you hear occasionally about people uh, who are like prisoners or something, and they're forced to deny Christ. Sure. And because they were forced, it doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation. So Sally said, you hear sometimes about people under extenuating circumstances. Maybe they're a prisoner, or someone puts a gun to their head, and they're forced to deny their self, deny to deny Christ. And that doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. That's absolutely right. But I'm going to take it one step further. They don't have to be forced. That's what we're talking about here. A person can, of their own free will and volition, someday just decide, I don't believe in Christ anymore, and it doesn't mean they're not saved. Because you get eternal life at the moment you believe the gospel. And you don't have to keep believing to keep it. Because if it was eternal when you got it, nothing that you or anyone else can do after that point can undo what you got at that point. And Paul addresses this in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse uh, 13. If we are faithless, and the word there in Greek is Ah, meaning no, or negative, pistis, faith. So it's literally no faith. You know, like in uh, English we have the word atheist, which is from the Greek atheos, no God. So an atheist believes there is no God. So no faith here. Even if we are faithless, we have no faith. We've lost our faith entirely. God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. So you're exactly right, Sally. Uh, Sometimes people uh, deny their faith because of external pressures. That is what was going on in the late 60s in and around Jerusalem when believers who had been Jews were being burned at the stake by Nero and his army were being persecuted, rounded up, families were being split up and killed. And many Jewish Christians, and they were really Christians, were denying the faith in order to save their physical lives. But they're in heaven today. Because logically, if you got eternal life when you believe the gospel, no matter what happens down the linear timeline of your life, it can't undo what happened in that moment. Right? Uh, so, I mean, someone could get a head injury or come down with a disease that impacts their ability to think. And we've seen examples of this. I mean, there's no history filled with examples of people who have traumatic brain injuries and they 
you know, deny Christianity, or they, you know, I mean, we've heard stories of people coming off the operating table and speaking fluent Spanish, you know, never studied Spanish a day in their life. I mean, the brain is a bizarre place, and so whatever the cause, whether it's an external physiological injury, whether it's emotional or psychological problems, whether it's you got into sin and got influenced by a false teacher or a cult or you were brainwashed or mind controlled by the CIA or whatever it is, thank the Lord that the moment we believe the gospel, I don't have to say, boy, I hope I keep on believing till I die. I don't have to say that. I plan to keep on believing till I die. I have no intention of believing otherwise because I love the Lord and I'm grateful for my salvation and in fact uh, the, the indwelling Holy Spirit interacts with the Word of God and all and we, we, we grow in our faith but there are a lot of things that can impede our growth. Uh, we can quench the Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit, we can not walk in the Spirit, we can uh, have a, a seared conscience and there are people in Scripture that Paul turned over to Satan that were believers because they had basically drifted too far away. And there are certainly temporal consequences and negative consequences for those who get away from the Lord. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about that, that sin has consequences, but it will never undo what is done at the moment you trust Christ for salvation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Peter, three times. Yeah, so Peter, you know, and he was not exactly under duress. I mean, he was pressured by his own pride and his own reputation and, and, and whatever else was going on in that moment. But yeah, I mean, he, he said not only did he deny Christ three times in a row, but he cursed him, right? But clearly he was a believer. I mean, he didn't lose his salvation at that moment, only to have to get it again. Um, and we're going to come back to the implications of those who reject this doctrine and who would say that oh yeah no you lose it if you deny the faith down the road you lose it but that's not what the bible says the bible says if we're even if we are faithless god remains faithful for he cannot deny himself right? yeah so in the case of matthew 10 33 whoever denies me before man i will also deny him before my father who is in heaven would that be referring to someone that had never believed no that's referring to believers to the disciples and, and Paul says the same thing in the verse we just looked at right before. I didn't mention it, but he says in verse 12, of, uh, I'll, I'll come back to Matthew 10 in a second, but before we leave 2 Timothy 2, we quoted verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. But in the verse right before, he says, if we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. What? The right to reign with him. Not entrance into heaven. And the same thing in Matthew 10. This is when Jesus is sending out the disciples. And... Um, He's talking about, you know, what's the verse right before it? Verse 32. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father. There's going to be a special commendation for those disciples who pay the ultimate sacrifice and end up being martyrs for Christ. You know, even in the midst of great persecution. If you continue to say, Jesus is my Lord, there's a great reward. It's called the martyr's reward that awaits you in heaven. Very next verse, but conversely, if you deny me before men, in other words, if you pull a Peter, right, then I'm going to deny you before my Father. I'm not going to get, give you that commendation before my Father. But he doesn't say I'm going to deny you entrance into heaven, or I'm going to send you to hell, or I'm going to take away your salvation. 
It's all about the context. But he's talking here about persecutions are coming. Remember, he says, I send you out as sheep among wolves, verse 16. And, uh, you know, he says, uh, but, but hang on and, and, and so forth. And then he, as he's giving them this charge, sending them out, he says, I want you to know, if you confess me before men in the face of persecution, I'm going to confess you before God. And what a great reward that'll be. I mean, think about it. Think about, you know, Jesus putting his arm around you and saying, come with me. And you walk up these beautiful golden steps and, and you knock on this massive golden door and the door's open and there's God sitting at his desk and he says, Father, you have a second? God says, yes, son, come right on in. Well, I just want to introduce you to, you know, Gary Mays, one of our special ones. He really paid the ultimate price on earth, you know, All right? So that's what he's talking about in Matthew 10. And we see that theme not just there, but also in the epistles in 2 Timothy, that if we, uh, com- if we confess him, we're going to receive commendation. If we don't, we won't. Good question. So any other questions or thoughts about logical proof? Are you following my train of thought here? Uh, you know, it all comes down to what we get when we believe the gospel. And logically, if that's eternal, then it can never, not, it can never go away. Yeah. Everyone is eternal, correct? But we either have eternal life with Christ or you're eternally in hell. Well, that's right. The soul never ceases to exist and never, you know, ceases consciousness. But it, there's a difference between eternal death and eternal life. Life is used in Scripture to refer to a positive quality. You know, we're born dead, but we are made alive in Christ. So your existence is eternal but if you don't know the lord and you die in unbelief your existence will constitute eternal death which is described as eternal torment in the everlasting lake of fire so it's it's a matter of defining our terms but you're right we everyone is conscious forever but not everyone experiences eternal life some will experience eternal death if they don't believe the gospel Good question. Anybody else? Okay, so now let's move to biblical proof. And I want to walk through a few passages that at their plain, normal, face value reading clearly teach the doctrine of eternal security. Again, with no wiggle room. First one of these I'd like us to look at is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So we read... In him, that's Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Let me stop there for a second just to compare scripture with scripture. What does Paul tell us in Romans? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you have to hear the gospel before you can believe the gospel. And here Paul is saying that these Ephesians had heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, they trusted in it, and then having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And notice, you know, I mean, that enough should settle the issue if you understand the meaning of the word seal. Okay? But he goes on to describe the implications of that seal by saying, he, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So in other words, Christ has purchased for us with his own shed blood 
eternal life. He's given it to us. We won't actually receive the glorification of our bodies uh, to the praise of His glory until we get to heaven. But it's as good as done. It's The guarantee is already there, right? So this is pretty, uh, again, no wiggle room, pretty tightly stated. Having believed the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know, not possibly sealed or probably sealed or potentially sealed, but sealed when? At the moment of belief. So again, I, I know I harp on this all the time, but if you think of your life as a timeline, humanly speaking, in time, space, and matter, you're going along on this timeline, you are an unbeliever. Because everyone's born dead in their trespasses and sins. So at some point, you, you're old enough to understand sin and the consequence of sin and the penalty of sin. And, and, and at that point, from that point on, if you were to die, you'd die in unbelief. Jesus says, if you don't believe that I'm here, you will die in your sins, right? So let's say you're going along, 15, 16, 20, 25 years old, you're still an unbeliever. If you were to die, you'd go to hell because you died in your sins. But at some point in that timeline, you hear and believe the gospel instantly in that punctiliar moment in time when faith meets the gospel, you're now made alive in Christ. You're born again. You're justified before a holy God. You're reconciled, no longer enemies with God. You're adopted into the family of God. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise in that moment when you believe. And at that point, now you're walking on to the timeline, and whether you live to be 80, 90, 100, 110 years old, all of those things that happen at the moment you believe never change. We Even if something in our life causes us to tragically get away from the Lord. And let's face it, all of us in this room, from the point we believe the gospel, have to varying greater or lesser degrees gotten away from the Lord since we were saved. So it's really only a matter of degree. So when we say, as the, some of those who deny eternal security, especially the second one category there, effective denial, the Calvinists, that, well, if you do this or this or this, that's a bridge too far and you, you proved you never had it. In essence, what we're saying is, I can sin as a believer and I can do all kinds of sins, and, but there are some sins that if I do those, that's too much. It's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. And it's a real prideful attitude because everybody in this room knows that there are times ever since we've gotten saved that we are closer to the Lord and further from the Lord. It's just a matter of degree. So what we need to understand is even in the extreme case, even in the extreme, if someone does the unthinkable and denies the Lord like Peter did, as on the testimony of Scripture, we can say without question they're still saved because of what happened at that moment when they believed the gospel. Yeah? There's never a time in our, in our walk, once we are saved, born again of God, empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit, regardless of how far one would slip into sin, the Holy Spirit never departs our soul, does it? Is Absolutely. It? Right. So the, the comment, which is dead on, is that there's never a time after we've been born again by faith that the Holy Spirit will leave us. And we know that. I'm sure I, I might get to it at some point in this uh, on the screen, but just while we're talking about it, if you look over at John 16, in the Upper Room Discourse, um, let's see if I can find it. 
where he said, um, give me just a second, I know I will find it. Where he says, I give you the Holy, the Holy Spirit whom, if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit and that he may abide with you forever. And it's like 15, well, Anyway, someone be looking it up in a concordance where it says, The Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, shall abide with you forever. These passages all run together in my mind all the time for, uh, in the, because like 1526, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you, the Father, uh, he will testify of me. Anyway, we'll, we'll, come back to it because I just can't put my finger on it right now. But anyway, it said that I can quote the verse, whom the Father will send the money, he will abide with you forever. So that's the point. Forever means forever, the same way eternal means eternal. So, uh, and then and then this verse here, which I think you've actually brought this up before in some of our dialogues, uh, you know, very appropriately, that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of possession until you die, is essentially what he's saying there. So no, the Holy Spirit can never leave. Yeah. Could it be John 14? 14, 16? Yeah, it's in the Upper Room Discourse. I was scanning 14, but couldn't. That he may abide with you forever. Yeah, John 14, 16. Thank you. One of the things that's so, such a blessing, so many of these verses that support eternal security are said by Christ himself. I the know. The Lord said those himself. John 10, the Upper Room Discourse. But yeah, thank you, Jeff. That's exactly the verse I was hunting for. Uh, I will pray the Father, He will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever, John 14, 16. So, forever means forever. Um, and then the same thing later on in Ephesians, He says something similar, that when He says in Ephesians 4.30, we are sealed for the day of redemption. Okay. Not sealed until we commit a big sin. Not sealed until we slack off a little bit on some of our good works not sealed until we deny the Lord, whether under compulsion or out of apostasy, sealed for the day of redemption. That's pretty clear. Pretty clear. Second um, Corinthians 1, similar teaching from the Apostle Paul, verses 21 and 22. He says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ, remember it's, it's God who adopts us into the family and makes us in Christ the moment we believe the gospel. But he, and anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I mean, again. Now, you know, going back to build on what you said a moment ago, even though the Holy Spirit will never leave us and can't until the day of redemption, it's a guarantee. And again, a guarantee. You know, guarantees don't mean as much today as they used to, even in our world. But when God makes a guarantee, you can take it to the bank. All right, There's no wiggle room. All right, God doesn't have any fine print. you know. Uh, so, But even though He'll never leave us, it is possible for a believer to drift so far from the Lord that it becomes harder and harder and harder for us to hear the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's, it's a hardened heart. Uh, scenario. So the Holy Spirit's constantly 
He's the one that pricks our heart when we have bad thoughts or you know commit sin, and and he draws us back to the Lord in fellowship, not family. We're, well, family is settled forever, but we can be out of fellowship with the Lord, and that's what First John is all about, by the way. Uh, but it's possible the more we sin, that the, the the longer we stay out of fellowship with the Lord, the harder it becomes to hear His voice, and so sometimes He has to really get our attention. Yeah. Right. Right. So great. That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. So Sally asked, if we know someone who's turned their back on the Lord and really kind of made this conscious decision to abandon the Lord, what should our attitude be toward them? Uh, and she said, you know, we can't really pray for the salvation because uh, we know they're saved. And there are a lot of people in that situation, especially parents. I can't tell you how many times over the years parents. I mean, dozens and dozens of times, more than I can ever remember, come up to me and they're dealing with a situation where they've got a child who they know as a young boy or girl placed their faith in Christ. They know that they, they could, you know, a parent knows, a parent can see a child and they know whether a child understands something or not. And, and they saw this young person place their faith in Christ. They saw them grow. They saw them probably get active in youth groups and in church. But at some point in their journey, they turn away. And, and it's heart-wrenching. It's absolutely heart-wrenching. So although we cannot pray for their salvation, we absolutely can and must pray for them because God is in the miracle-working business and God wants to draw them home. And um, ultimately, um, the, some people do die in a state, in a backslidden state. We have examples of this in Scripture. John the Baptist is a notable example who died questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. He wasn't even sure that the one he had proclaimed was who he said he was, but yet John the Baptist is in heaven today. Uh, so uh, ultimately, uh, sometimes if someone persists in a sinful condition, especially if they're harming themselves and others, sometimes the Lord in his sovereignty calls them home, right? First uh, John 5 says there's sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that that's the eventuality for every apostate believer. Others ultimately uh, respond to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and they turn it around. We've seen examples of this. We just don't have the mind of God, and we don't know, but we must never give up hope. We must continue to pray, and if it is the Lord's will, the person will turn around this side of heaven. If not, he may call them home. Yeah. My mom used to tell me sometimes it's good to pray that, that maybe something difficult might come along that would call people back. And uh, I actually had a friend who was struggling with sickness. We prayed for his health. And in that process, he became to know the Lord. And then um, I sort of felt him drifting. And I said, Lord God, maybe you want sickness to return. Huh. Even though we prayed for it to be healed so that he might know you better. And yeah. sure enough, within a week, he was suffering in a really tough way. And it was just really neat because today he was telling me about all the things, that he's, how, how much he's growing. Yeah. And it all came through suffering. So, I mean, that, that may sound like a demented prayer, but to pray for suffering in someone's life. But if that's what brings you close to God, that's 
Yeah, so Jeff said that sometimes it's suffering and a crisis that draws people to the Lord to begin with, but then also sometimes God uses suffering to draw sinning believers back to Him. And so, uh, I mean, life is tough. I mean, we live in a fallen world, and it's a there's no, you know, boilerplate, one-size-fits-all life, right? And, and we tend to think that everybody else's life is just like ours. And so because I've been through rough times and I've held on to my faith, if someone else abandons their faith, well, they must not be a believer. But we don't know. And, you know, God uses, God works in mysterious ways. He uses crazy things. And, and, and the Christian, the annals of Christian history are chock full of believers who had drifted away from the Lord, maybe even denied the Lord. And God used some emotional experience in their life to get their attention. And in that moment, they sort of break down. And all the walls that they had put up break down. All their defenses break down. And they come running to the Lord. I mean, the prodigal son in Luke 15 is the quintessential example. Now, there's more going on in that passage. It's more about Israel and all that. But it's still a beautiful picture of someone who says, In your face, Father and runs as fast as they can involved in the worst sins that a Jew can be involved in, and yet came to their self, came to their senses. So God can absolutely use life crises to bring people back, and it's never too late. So going back to you know, Sally's concern, if, you, if we all, anyone in here knows somebody or has a, a son or a daughter or a grandson or granddaughter, a friend that is running full speed ahead of the Lord and you really believe they're saved, um, pray for them. And, um, you know, it's, it's like what we talked about in uh, several weeks ago in our study through Romans. I mean, I'm sorry, through Hebrews, where in Hebrews um, 10, I mean, I'm sorry, the famous passage in Hebrews 6, where he says, for, for those who uh, have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And I pointed out when we studied that passage that it's, it, the, the voice here in the Greek grammar is very critical. It doesn't say it's impossible for them to be renewed because he says in one, two verses earlier, if God permits, they can. But what he says is it's impossible for us to renew them again. In other words, sometimes people are so far away from the Lord, so headstrong in their rebellion against God, that no amount of browbeating from us is going to turn them around. It's going to have to be God. And God can do it according to Hebrews 6. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, when that point comes is anybody's guess. I mean, for me, I can't imagine just knowing my nature if someone I loved very dearly and was very close to was completely rebelling against God ever taking a hands-off role and saying, okay, like Paul did, I'm going to turn you over and it's up to you and God. That's a hard thing to do. But all I'm saying is theologically, that's the description Paul gives there, is that for some people who have apostatized, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Though if God permits, they can be renewed. But it's going to have to be a work of God. Yeah? Well, to Jeff's point, um, I've heard a couple times that people uh, persecuted Christians in other countries, such as China, are praying for us that we'll have more persecution wow. so that we'll come closer to the Lord. Wow, that's powerful. <laughs> um, 
my, uh, my second point is that uh, I think uh, kind of touching on what you were saying, it's really difficult sometimes for us as outsiders to look at somebody else and say he or she was safe or right. was not safe or whatever. You know, uh, I mean, you know, say, so say there was, say Billy Graham was still alive and had a crusade, right? And, you know, 500,000 people went forward. You know, who's to say, you know, that all of those really, really believed right. or didn't believe? <laughs> yeah, especially in that scenario of a conference. So her point is it, it, a very good point, and we've talked about this a lot, but it's always important to remember that ultimately the only person that knows whether they're saved is that person and God, right? I mean, we can, based on their testimony and the authority of Scripture, we can say if a person gives testimony to the fact that they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins, that, that you know, they're Christians. But hypothetically, they could be lying, right? I mean, we can't crawl inside their heart and mind and say with absolute certainty uh, but so, so we have to be careful about prejudging one way or the other, right? I'm, for example, I'm not suggesting that everyone who claims to be a Christian is really a Christian. Uh, a lot of people say they're Christians, but they've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. They've walked an aisle at a crusade or signed a card or raised a hand or done something else that in their mind checked the box, but not biblically, right? So uh, let's make it send a clear signal on this that there are false professors out there the church is full of them every sunday across this land there are people sitting in church who think they're saved and they're not all i'm saying is that it, it's not their behavior that makes the difference it's not their behavior that is the determinative factor of whether or not they're a christian it's have they trusted christ or not and so uh so yeah i mean i think your point is well taken that you know people uh often uh mark a moment when they in their minds became a christian but maybe in their church it was because they went through catechism or they got baptized or they signed a card or it know. also works the other way around i knew a young woman once when i was young <laughs> and uh i grew up in a church that did not believe in internal security they were in category one yeah um and she had said she had she had made a decision to follow the Lord, and she went to her proving uh, in front of the elders and so on. And they determined that, you know, it was she was not ready yet to be baptized, and she was just devastated. She's going, well, you know, I believed, but I'm not saved yet. So I guess, you know, according to Hebrews, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I felt so sorry for her. I was trying to convince her, but I yeah. ultimately did not convince her, was unable to convince That's her. That's sad. I mean, so you're the, for the recording, uh, she was talking about, uh, you know, some churches that uh, definitely do not believe in eternal security and believe that salvation is not simply a free gift received by faith, but that you've got to prove, you've got to, you know, do something. And this is very common, particularly over in Russia, uh, in the Christian churches in Russia, since Russia opened back up, they have public repentance and that, you know, you, you've got to, not, it's not just about believing the gospel, but you've got to come forward and you've got to prove that, you know, and, and I understand the culture there. I understand why, having been many people sacrificed for the cause of Christ, that uh, 
people in this day and age would say, well, I don't want it to make it too easy for people to get saved. After all, my grandfather or my father gave his life for Christ in the communist regime or whatever. Uh, but that doesn't change theology. That doesn't change what the Bible says. The Bible says it's a free gift, and we don't have to prove it to anyone else. We don't have to publicly repent. Uh, it's a matter of have you trusted Christ or not. And so hopefully at that moment, and again, like you said, we can make educated guesses based on their testimony, uh, but hopefully that person uh, is in fact saved and notwithstanding what their elders told her. Uh, and, and we see the same thing today, even among mainstream uh, churches that, that would fall into category two, that claim to believe in eternal security, but really it's an effective denial. And I, I think in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I talk about one uh, guy who, who actually was advocating and trying to get everyone to, to go along with, and his church they do this, that when a person gets saved, they be put on probation for six months before they get baptized. And you can't baptize them at the soonest would be six months because you've got to give them time to prove that they're really saved. And if in that six-month period they somehow sin or get drunk again or make a mistake, well, they never were serious, so they're not going to get baptized. He literally talked about a six-month probationary period before you baptize them. I'm pretty, I, I don't quote me on this. It's in the book, but I'm pretty sure it was Mark Devers. I'm almost positive that's who, who made that statement. So that's the Calvinist. At least, again, at least he's consistent with his own theology because Calvinists teach that you've got to believe and keep on believing, believe and do good works, believe and persevere to the end, or you're not saved. So why not put them on probation? Right? How do they support that type of a doctrine? I mean, when you come across scriptures such as these that we've been looking at this evening, yeah. that are just absolutes, no questioning. Yeah. They come from Christ himself. But how do they in turn then support that position? And there are so many that have all kinds of variances. Oh, yeah. How did they go about supporting So the question is, how do Calvinists and those who hold that view go about supporting their view? Well, that's a very big question, and, uh, and there's an actually a simple answer to it, but it's, it's pretty uh, involved. But the simple short answer is they have, ever since the Protestant Reformation, they have redefined the meaning of faith so that it must include the element of uh, surrender, commitment, all those things we talked about that are not part of the gospel. So they're saying, oh yeah, you're saved by faith alone, and we're saying we're saved by faith alone. The Bible certainly says we're saved by faith alone. But when they say it, they mean something different uh, by uh, that notion of faith. And I got an email just this week, two or three emails in, in follow-up with one another, uh, from a guy who was asking that very question. And, you know, I said that you cannot, you cannot, how did I put it? I wish I could look it up because I thought I put it very well. <laughs> and I don't think I'll be able to put it as well now. But anyway, I, I said something like, um, you know, hiding good works within a new definition of faith does not mean you're not still making good works part of, you know, the gospel. In other words, they would say, no, we're not, you don't have to do good works to be saved. But then they say, but faith means you must do good works. And so therefore, since I've, included it under the umbrella of faith, it's okay. I'm still teaching faith alone. But what if I said faith means you have to be baptized? So I'm still preaching faith alone, but you know, you, you, but you got to be baptized. You know, you can't. You just can't make up definitions to prove your theology. It doesn't work that way. So the short answer is, they defend it because whenever we see all these passages that say 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, John 6, 47, the words of Christ. They say, they say what Jesus meant by that was, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever trusts in and pledges and promises and to obey me and forsakes all and surrenders all and makes me Lord of his life, has everlasting life. That's, that's what they mean, think that word faith means. And, it come, and it's in their writings. What's that? If Christ had met that, he would have said it. Yeah, and nowhere in the in the in the biblical record and the historical record do we see in the Greek language the word pistuo meaning that. It always means confidence or assurance. Period, plus nothing, right? So, uh, but they, if you go back to the Synod of Dort and the whole, you know, over time the evolution of Calvinism and neo-Calvinism today, it has become, it's what they call fiducia. It's a Latin term. And I think I, I think it was in here that I showed several examples of that word fiducia in their own writings. They actually use it all the time. MacArthur, Piper, all these guys. They say you got to have fiducia. You know, that guy had faith, but he didn't have fiducia, so it wasn't real faith. Yeah, Jeff. It's, it's, I mean, it's interesting how when people want to put good works into the gospel, they they can't because there are, there aren't the words that they're looking for in the text. So so instead they just they put more meanings into words that, you know, it's like these hidden meanings, right? Because you can't you can't use an actual visible word because it's not there. So then all of a sudden these these words go around adopting extra meanings. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and it's tricky because it becomes this game, this word game, where we're playing with words. And you know, I mean, think of the Lutheran tradition where you know had a lengthy debate um, with the Lutheran where it was. Yeah, during this process of infant baptism, you are given this miracle faith, yeah, right. right? So it's like, oh no, it's not works. Yeah. It's just that when you're doing works, you have that's when you get this, this, you know, yeah, efficacious grace. They call it, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it, uh, it it all comes down to the meaning of words and 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 how you study your Bible and in, in its literal, grammatical, historical uh, sense. Uh, so let me mention a couple more here, and then we'll be finished with number two, and that's a good stopping point. So obviously we've already talked about John 10, 28, but it falls under the category of biblical proof too, and I mentioned when we talked about that I was going to come back to it. But here's the full context. I give them eternal life, Jesus said, and they shall never perish. Seems pretty clear to me. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So pretty, pretty plain and pretty simple. Um, and I'm not going to take the time on each of these verses to try to point out how Calvinists try to use this to defend their view, because this is a when they talk about my father has given them to me again. The Calvinists don't believe you can believe the gospel. You don't have a choice. You're forced to believe it. It's called irresistible grace. That's their view. So, you know, if you are not elect, you can't believe the gospel no matter how much you wanted to. And if you're elect, you couldn't resist the gospel no matter how much you want. That's their view. And so they would try to pull that from passages like this. And then one of the most beautiful, oh yeah, real quick. What is neo-Calvinism? So, yeah, great question. Anytime I say something and when I'm getting ahead of myself that is a new term, please stop me and ask me. So neo just means new. So neo-Calvinism is sort of the new brand of Calvinism, which is not... Strictly speaking, it's drifted quite away from what we had when Luther nailed those 95 theses to the wall. It's sort of evolved and gotten morphed into something worse. Um, so we'll say things like neo-orthodoxy, 
the whole neo-orthodoxy movement in the higher, in the, in the uh, say the early turn of the 20th century up to the through the 50s, uh, was you know this redefining the basis for our authority instead of it being the Bible, it's the words of Christ and this nebulous thing, and so uh, our standard of orthodoxy became harder to pin down because we did it wasn't rooted in the text; it was rooted in sort of the implied meaning of the text. And so anytime you see neo, uh, like uh, you've heard in political sense, you've heard the phrase neocon, which stands for what? Neoconservative. Neo meaning these are, you know, conservatives, but they're really not true libertarian conservatives. They're, they're the rhinos, right? The Republican in name only. They're the neoconservatives, not the true patriotic constitutionalist conservatives. So anytime you see neo, it just means sort of new, and it implies uh, a drift from the what, what was previously the case. Neoconservative has drifted away from conservatism, neo-Calvinism has drifted away from Calvinism, and so on. Do you think, like, John MacArthur is a neo-Calvinist, or is he a regular one? Well, I mean, like, the question is, is MacArthur a neo-Calvinist or a regular one? Well, there's really no distinction today. I mean, um, I, I guess sometimes you'll hear like what I meant when I said it is to distinguish, say, from John Calvin. I mean, John Calvin it wasn't technically speaking a Calvinist the way it, you know, the Calvinists of the last hundred years define it. And he had some differences. So that's what I mean. But today, all Calvinists are in the same bucket. All I was trying to point out was that it's not necessarily identical to what we saw back in the days of the Reformation. So. Good question. So Romans 8 is perhaps the most beautiful description. I mean, if you think of proof texts for eternal security, your mind should go to John 10 and Romans 8, just right off the bat, right? Where Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the context there, he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, same kind of thing Paul said in Philippians, I think it is, He who began a good work will carry it on to completion. Um, but whenever I come across you know, people from a more Wesleyan perspective, which they would hold to uh, category one. They would deny it, but they would be a little more nuanced than an outright Arminian. Arminians teach you must do good works to become saved. If you stop doing good works, you lose it. That's just that's their paradigm. Wesleyans are a little nuanced. They would say, um, you know, good works or bad works don't save you or make you unsaved, but you can still lose it if you voluntarily give it back. Like, so they would say on the John 10 passage, no one can snatch you from his hand, but you can jump out, is the way they would interpret that passage. And so uh, whenever I come across them, I say, well, let me ask you a question. Are you a created being? Did God create you? Oh, yeah, I am. Well, then, you seem to fit the category here. No other created thing can separate you from the love of God, right? You can't, you, you know, you can't, Nobody can unsave you, and you can't unsave yourself because nobody's more powerful than God. And he said, I give you eternal life, and you shall never perish. So those are some key uh, biblical proofs. 
And um, I'll give you this teaser for next time. We'll pick up with number three, which I call directional proof. And I'll look at some more verses when we get to that. All right. All right. Well, thank you guys very much. And I uh, look forward to seeing you either Sunday or Wednesday. Don't forget, if you haven't already, sign up for both the Plum Creek newsletter so you can kind of keep up with what's going on here and the Not By Works newsletter. Just go to notbyworks.org or plumcreekchapel.org and right there on both home pages you can sign up for it. And uh, a lot of great resources on the Not By Works uh, website as well that are totally free. So, all right. Thanks.